electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. That was President Biden speaking at the White House, noting a few things about the debt ceiling negotiations. Number one, that the two sides would meet again on Friday to try to come to some conclusion, but they would chat informally every day. President Biden also warning about some dire consequences if we do not raise the debt ceiling, saying the American economy would fall into recession, that it would devastate retirement accounts, and that it would raise borrowing costs on Americans. He also said that 8 million Americans, according to Moody's, could lose their jobs. Now, he did blame the former president for most of the debt increase, about 40 percent. President did, I think, misspeak a little bit. Twice he said that he lowered the debt by $1.7 trillion. I believe he probably meant the deficit. The national debt has not come down. The deficit has come down off its COVID highs, but still the third highest on record. President also noting that he wants to end tax credits for oil and gas. He will use the term subsidy. But remember, the tax credits he's talking about are just the same investment and R&D tax credits that other industries, every business in America does take. President also taking some rare questions. Most of them were about the debt ceiling. He did get one about the uh, charges and the fine against the former president today, which he dodged and said he did not know much more about. So the president did take questions. We have not heard from the president in that format for a long time. So let's bring in now our guest, former U.S. Senator from North Dakota, Heidi Handcap, and former NYC president and Far Peak chair and CEO, Tom Farley. Senator Heidkamp, your impression not only of where the debt ceiling negotiations are right now, but of so sort of the president's comments in that press conference. Well, I think the president sounded the right tone. Um, obviously, we didn't see a market reaction. I think people are kind of on a wait and see. But honestly, I think the president wanted to basically say, I'm an optimist. I think we can get this done. We have our positions. We laid them out. Um, he was, I thought, very interesting when he talked about what's in the bill. What are they going to cut? I think that'll cause a lot of us to go scrambling and look back um, at what's been said and was actually in the piece of legislation. But I think at this point, all four uh, major legislative leaders and the president are trying to calm the waters, basically say we're working on it. And I know behind the scenes, the staff is meeting frantically to see if they can come up with a plan. Can, can you, so before we go to Tom, Senator, can you help us, and, and by the way, me understand some of the language that is being used, because I think it's confusing even at a high level. As I understand it, and please correct me if I am wrong, there was a 22% increase, proposed increase, in the Veterans Affairs Administration budget. We all want to help veterans. We know that. The Republican proposal, again, as I understand it, would simply go back to the previous year. In other words, just take it back to where we were in 2022, which is then being called by Chuck Schumer and President Biden a, quote, cut. Are a lot of these cuts actually just reductions of planned increases or do they actually cut from last year's levels? Well, I think what they're saying is that we have made a commitment to our veterans, whether it's on burn pits or whether it is uh, other kinds of things, and that when you basically go back or renege on a deal that the veterans think they have, or let's talk about the Inflation Reduction Act, where you have thousands of co small companies and big companies thinking right now we're going to apply for these tax credits, and they're hearing that the tax credits might not be here. That that I mean, you can you can parse the language, but I think it's more about expectations, and uh, you know uh, these veterans benefits they're. There was a lot of ballyhoo about we did the job we're protecting our veterans if you roll it back to the level there will be needs that will be unmet that veterans have proven that they need and so whether you call it a cut or not i think uh, it's about uh, expectations and what people thought that they earned in previous pieces of legislation tom farley the nyc uh, far peak now do you think that it will quote decimate retirement accounts as the president said and lead to Eight million job losses, according to Moody's. First time caller, big fan of the show. You're doing a great job, Brian. Thank you. 
It's, uh, it's, it's nice to be with you. I, I was watching President Biden. That guy needs a deal. I mean, he's to his, to his credit, he has changed his tone. I think he realizes the quandary he's in. There's no more of this, I won't negotiate, which was always ridiculous. He's waited way too long. The timeline is very short. It's already been a tactical mistake that's inje injected lots of risk into the economy. Just look at treasuries, look at CDS. Executives are already pulling back. It increases the risk of recession. All of that is bad, but... I, too, am an optimist, and I think the fact that he needs a deal so bad, this Title 42 is shaping up to be a, a disaster, potentially. Uh, uh, recession risk is, is real. Poll numbers are down. So if, 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 if he doesn't get a deal here by June 1st or shortly thereafter, that is a potential catastrophe. So I think the president will come to the table, and the politics say, and I'm curious if the senator agrees with this, the politics say, Speaker McCarthy is not going to take a deal that doesn't bring along at least a majority of House Republicans. So in other words, a deal doesn't look like uh, just window dressing. A deal looks like something truly bipartisan, but, something but, that will reel in spending. Tom, do you do you think that and we, we've had a technical default before, almost like a synthetic default. We've had government shutdowns before. It has been grim at the time. The stock market is now higher than it was when those things occurred if we had a technical default or a month or two where we had to shut down the government, couldn't pay the bills, whatever it might be, do you believe the stock market would crash or the equity market would look out years from now as it tends to do? It would greatly increase volatility. No question about it. In other words, you would see asset prices fluctuating wildly, whether or not they went down 10, 15 percent like they did in the Boehner days. I'm not sure. My guess is my guess is yes, frankly, because this is coming at a really tough time. This, this banking situation is real. There's a lot of nervousness about banks and how steadfast they are. And if you layer on a default at the same time, uh, I think, yeah, it's scary stuff. We need to deal. I mean, look, everybody needs to get serious. We need more adults. You know, we, at this moment in time, we need more Senator Romney, Senator Manchin, people saying, yeah, of course we're going to negotiate around a debt limit increase. Because how does we get, how do we get here? We spend too darn much. And we need people to say, we need to come well, to an agreement quickly. We cannot default. We are a beacon for the world in terms of how safe our economy is. Well, I've got to imagine, uh, Senator Heidkamp, that, that these are adults. I mean, President Biden was elected to Senate in 1972. Chuck Schumer elected in the 70s. Mitch McConnell, I think, was elected in 1980. I mean, if these aren't adults, they've got about 200 years of collective experience in that room. But answer me this. In 2006, we had a, we had a debt ceiling increase vote. President Biden, then Senator Biden and Senator Schumer both voted no. President Biden saying that the debt was already too high and the Republicans had mismanaged the federal government. That was twenty one trillion dollars of debt ago when the then senator was saying debt was too high, as well as Chuck Schumer. I mean, how are we supposed to read this when the debt was too high at nine trillion, but apparently is not too high at thirty one trillion? Well, Brian, if you're looking for consistency in policy on debt and debt and deficit, you're looking in the wrong place. I mean, it's just a matter of. That's why, that's why we love you. That's why we love you. Tell right. it like it is. Even your two Democratic yeah. senators from North, North Dakota had two Democratic senators at the time, Kent Conrad and Byron Dorgan, and they both voted no. Yeah, I mean, I think I think if you step back and you say you use the leverage that you have, which is what McCarthy's doing, it was something that he promised he would do in order to get elected speaker. I do want to take issue with the fact that uh, Schumer said, I'll never negotiate. That's not what he said. He said, send me a package. And I think, you know, uh, McCarthy knew that he had to pass something. I think it's to his credit that he got a bill passed. Now the ball is in the court of the uh, the Senate. The Senate can't pass anything because you need 60 votes to do it. And so there's going to be a compromise package. And all the people at the table right now are saying, we're gonna get this deal done. It may not be on Friday, it may not be you know, on Monday, but it will get done so we do not uh, we do not default. I, I was there in, in 13 when they threatened this and we were in government shutdown and it was the default that led to the opening of government. But it was interesting because I asked the, uh, I was on banking. I asked Tim Johnson, who at the time was chair of banking, to do a hearing on what would happen. And I'll never forget one of the comments. I think it was the, the head of the um, Securities Association came in and he said, 
if you default on debt, it won't just be today. That's a bell you can't unring. And so what happens to when we carry treasuries at 100% of value on balance sheets, what will we have to discount, even if it's a percent? That's a huge consequence. And I think they understand that. I think we're going to get to a deal. And I think they're doing a little bit of kumbaya today to calm the markets for tomorrow and to send the right signal. So yeah. I'm optimistic. And we, and we do actually have sound from the president, Tom. We're going to play it. And then I want you to respond to it in any way you see fit. Here is the president talking about Mitch McConnell. I'm pleased, uh, but not surprised, to hear Republican Minority Leader of the United States Senate saying that at our meeting that the United States is not going to default, never has, and it never will. So that's got to bring some optimism, Tom. Where you've got the president basically saying, hey, Mitch McConnell, he's the Senate Minority Leader. He says we're not going to default. McCarthy doesn't want it. Schumer doesn't want it. Yeah, they're far apart. But there are some optimistic signs. Yeah, yeah, I, I agree. Look, he's not one of the crazies. Uh, and, and, I, and I think he realized just how painful it would be. Now, he also said, I think it was over the weekend, Brian, may have been on Friday. He also said, yeah, I'm basically, I'm not involved. Go, go talk to Speaker McCarthy. Uh, and that's, that's not going to work. So I'm glad he was in the meeting. I'm glad that he said those things. I actually have faith in, uh, uh, I guess we'd be minority leader, McConnell to, to be a reasonable voice. And I, I'm actually optimistic. It's risky and it's scary. And we only have, what, three weeks, uh, maybe mm -hmm. four, maybe five, but not a lot of time. So it's, yeah. it's way too short. And I, I wish President Biden were, you know, gallivanting around Ireland. And instead, we've been working on this for three, four or five months. But I, I think we get to a deal. And it'll be a, it'll be a deal that we look at and we say, oh, this, this is reasonable. It's, it's not great. Yeah. You know, I look at the I look at the plan that uh, Speaker McCarthy got passed through the House. And basically, the, our, 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 our budget has five items in it, you know, uh, uh, health care, welfare, so, Social Security, military, education. None of those are, are considered in that plan. So is it a serious plan? No, not yet. But he proved that the Republicans are serious about negotiating. Yeah, and it's good. And the, and the president, I believe, like I said, I believe he did misspeak. I think he said the debt has come down twice, but it's actually the deficit has come down off its COVID highs. I think we know what he meant, but he did say debt. Senator Heidkamp, can you clear something up for us as well? Because the president continues to tweet out and comment about ending oil and gas subsidies. He's used the term subsidies and sort of special tax breaks. I, as far as I read it in the tax code, he's simply referring to the investment tax credit that is available to every industry as it is oil and gas. Is that how you understand it as well? Or is no, there some secret no. oil and gas subsidy that we are not aware of that he wants to eliminate? No, typically what they're talking about is intangible drilling costs, which I used to try and explain were really nothing different than ordinary and necessary business expenses Correct. and uh, depletion. And so there are additional kinds of provisions in the tax code, like intangible drilling costs and depletion that he's actually referring to, I think, here. Yeah, I, I believe so. We don't know exactly who he's referring to, but I don't think there's some super secret <laughs> tax subsidy <laughs> that we that oil and gas gets do that. As far as there's, I understand it, just... Brian, Brian, there's there's a number of um, documents written by, let's say, the, uh, the uh, CAP, which is a liberal-leaning think tank that talks about subsidization of the oil and gas companies. And so you go back and refer to the work that they've done over the past to make a, you know, obviously that's something that I talked a lot about when I was there. Because, you know, when you talk about intangible drilling costs, I say, okay, what are those? Those aren't unique uh, deductions. These are deductions for ordinary and necessary business expenses. But I do want to make a point about Mitch McConnell. Mitch McConnell is not saying anything different today than what he's been saying for the last 10 years. He has been consistent. He has told his caucus he is not going to let them default. I think 13 was a lesson that you can't let people go rogue, that you have got to send a clear message. And so I think he is sending a clear message. It's a message that's consistent. Doesn't necessarily mean that he's going to agree with Biden. It means that okay, you go ahead and negotiate this, but I am not going to let us fall off the cliff. And good for Mitch. He's been clear on that position since the very beginning and for quite a long time. Isn't the bigger risk, isn't the bigger risk getting it done in the House? I mean, that's yeah. the, you know, Speaker McCarthy, unless he wants to, you know, be a lobbyist, 
on 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 K Street yeah. uh, and step down. Yeah, he he can only approve something that has. I would think I, I'm making it up, but a majority of the Republicans in in the House come yeah. along with it, 75 percent. I, I I actually think that's problematic because he's going to have a problem with the rules that he established if he doesn't get majority. If this isn't passed with Republican votes. All all, uh, all good commentary. Uh, Senator Heidi Heitkamp, uh, Tom Farley, really appreciate it. I think we can all agree that somebody needs to bring the president a cup of water. Next time. All right. <laughs> Just good to hear from him. All right. With all these fast-moving developments, take a look at how futures are responding, and they are not. They're effectively flat. All right. Meantime, here's what happened to your money today. The Dow, the SP, and NASDAQ all dropping, but not a lot. Just a touch. Dow down 56 points as well. All the major averages are down this month. Let's go inside the market. The biggest winner of the day was kidney dialysis company DeVita, up nearly 13%. I, I guess, unfortunately, demand for kidney problems is surging. The biggest loser, PayPal investors, did not like their margins. By the way, a dishonorable mention was Dish Network, also fell more than 10%, now down more than half this year. Dish Network, ah, tough, tough year for that stock and its investors. All right, we are just getting started on this Tuesday night. Much more show ahead. And up next, Tucker Carlson and Elon Musk unite, kind of. The ousted Fox host says he is taking his show to Twitter. We'll tell you more coming up. Plus, Dr. Watson, I presume, IBM bringing back its AI supercomputer from the forgotten wilderness. Can it actually catch up in the AI arms race? And investors getting wrecked in EVs. We're going to show you the staggering amount of money lost. It is a stat you will only see here. We'll talk that and travel and more. Stick around. Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. It's time to take your career to the next level. With over 150 graduate degree programs, the Catholic University of America, located in Washington, D.C., provides world-class academics with a student experience that educates the whole person, mind, body, and spirit. Whether your professional calling is in engineering, nursing, social work, or any of our other exceptional degree programs, encounter the best of everything that Catholic University has to offer and discover the best in yourself. Learn more today at catholic.edu forward slash gradadmissions. All right, it's time now for tomorrow's news tonight. The stories you're going to be talking about tomorrow morning, and there is a big one developing in the world of social and traditional media. Ousted Fox News host Tucker Carlson announcing the launch of a new show, and it will be on Elon Musk's Twitter. A specific day for the show's debut was not revealed, but Carlson says it will be starting soon. Now, shares of Rupert Murdoch's Fox Corp down slightly in after hours in the wake of that news, down by about a half a percent. A bigger move happening with shares of Rumble. That is the online video platform popular with many conservatives. There had been some speculation that Carlson could join it. That apparently will not be happening, at least for now. Rumble shares down 8.5%. For more on this and more in this kind of weird saga, let's bring in Dylan Byers, Puck founding partner and senior correspondent. Uh, Dylan, good to have you back on. Carlson joining Twitter. Big deal? Small deal? No deal? Oh, I think it's a very big deal. I mean, potentially, right? We ha- we have to see how this shakes out. And and right now you've got, you know, if you look at Tucker Carlson, you've got someone who is driving away advertisers on Fox News. You look at uh, the way that Elon Musk has handled Twitter since he took it over, also driving away advertisers. So th- th- there is potential here to sort of make the platform even more uh, toxic to a certain segment of the population and, and certainly to some advertisers. At the same time, you have in Tucker Carlson someone with massive influence who um, it's not guaranteed, but certainly has the potential to sort of reshape uh, the landscape of conservative media. Uh, you know, we, we've seen what's happened to Fox ratings after he left the 8 p.m. hour in prime time. Uh, they took a very significant hit. History suggests that they bounce back from that. 
But, you know, historically, they didn't have someone of Tucker Carlson's um, sort of magnitude going off and then and then starting something in this sort of fraught political environment. So I think there's a lot that's up in the air right now uh, in, in terms of what conservative media looks like and who the who the sort of most influential voices mm-hmm. are between now and the 2024 election. You also reported, Dylan, by the way, and if people don't subscribe to Puck, they should. It's fantastic. I've been a subscriber since the start. No freebies in the media here, Dylan. I just want to make that very clear. <laughs> we, uh, Bill Cohen probably it. appreciates it as well. Um, Fox could sue him for breach of contract, but I think you reported that Carlson and his lawyers are basically saying, no, no, Fox, we're going to sue you. You fired me, thus breaching the contract. Is this possible this does not happen? Yeah, I, I think they they were anticipating the moment that he went out and announced this Twitter show that he would be in breach. And so they're trying to get ahead of that by going after Fox for being in breach. And they're, they're putting a lot of out there that still needs to be verified and, and, and fact checked. For instance, there's an assertion in there that Tucker was fired as part of the Dominion settlement, uh, which is a claim that Fox News categorically denies. Uh, but I, I think by getting this tied up in a legal process with the threat of further discovery, they're hoping that they can preempt that breach of contract claim by Fox News. So, so before we get into any of this, uh, there's going to be this mm-hmm. whole sort of legal quagmire that needs to get worked out, likely out of court, but perhaps in court. Yeah, we'll see. And uh, yeah, I wait for the boycott Twitter thing to come out and then we'll see how that goes. I don't know if there's a good alternative. Mastodon hasn't. Exactly racked it up. Dylan Byers, appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you, sir. All right. Meantime, IBM joining the AI party again. We say again because you remember Watson, IBM's supercomputer that it bragged about over a decade ago? Well, apparently, IBM is giving Watson a reboot. Watson made its debut more than a decade ago. His most famous moment was appearing as a contestant on Jeopardy back in 2011. Now we come to Watson. We're looking for Bram Stoker. And we find who is Bram Stoker and the wager. Hello, 17,973, 41,413, and a two-day total of 77,147. And Watson won. So what happened to Watson after that? And where did it spend that money? All right, well, not much happened to Watson. The same goes for IBM stock. Over the last 10 years, IBM shares have lost nearly 40 down nearly 40%. Compare that to the NASDAQ 100 tech index gaining over 300%. But what's old is apparently new again. IBM is now rolling out Watson X. Here's CEO Arvind Krishna describing its growth potential on overtime a little bit earlier. We're also going to partner. We had a partnership with Hugging Face. So you can start with models IBM gives you. You can bring in open source models. And by the way, you can train your own model, not just the ones that are the, at the basis of what OpenAI or Microsoft or IBM gives you. All right, so why now? Perhaps this has something to do with it. Recall back in January of this year, Microsoft announced it was investing $10 billion into OpenAI, the maker of ChatGPT. And since that day, Microsoft has gained $483 billion in market cap. That's almost the equivalent of four and a half IBMs. Big blue clearly sees the big green. But is it too little, too late in the AI arms race? Joining us now is Empire Financial Senior Editor, CNBC contributor Herb Greenberg. And I want to announce something that's very important, Herb, in addition to the story. As of now, I will only be known as Brian A.I. Sullivan, because if I just add A.I. to a name... Uh, it tends to go up in value. Yeah, have you actually, if you look at the list of names that, 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 that the websites that end in .ai, the list is so long. I wish we had a way to look, you know, from between here and there to see whatever, you know, what has happened over the past year. But I will tell you something. You ask, is it too little, too late? I would say for IBM, you have to be somewhat dubious just because of the IBM's history. And you could look at IBM's earnings and you can see how much you know they give forensic accountants a field day just because of the earnings quality. But when it comes to AI, it's anybody's guess who will be actually in the lead. You could argue everybody has a shot here. The problem with, with IBM is that IBM wasn't quite known for this. In fact, I'm surprised they're using Watson again because we're all so confused about what happened to Watson 1.0. So I think that, you know, it still remains to be seen who the big winner 
will be, winners will be. We know that Microsoft, we know that Google, we know all of those. But even then, first mover advantage, we know, doesn't always guarantee long-term success. And where IBM fits in that, anybody's guess. Can you help me? And I mean this sincerely, my friend. Like, What is IBM? IBM used to make mainframes and they made these pizza i had one in college called we called it the pizza box it was an 8088 was the number of the processor they don't make hardware anymore i know they're consulting and they sued ibm has nearly 300,000 employees what is ibm i don't know what ibm what is do they anymore do? because i actually i couldn't I, I couldn't tell you i look i all, all i know is i was on cnbc 10 15 years whatever it's 13 years ago when they, one of the former, so one, one of the former CEOs announced his, his departure. And I said, when he was leaving, I said, that was the tell that things were starting to unwind there. I don't think anyone quite knows what IBM is. They have an enormous, some people would say there's an enormous opportunity because it's so, it's so, you know, down and out, but you know, it's one thing to say your AI, it's another to prove your AI, to really prove it. And right now, they have to say they're in the game because if you don't show you're even attempting yeah. to be in the game and your name is IBM, it, that is not good. Fat, hey, quickly, a fat 5.5% dividend yield. I mean, at least it's kicking off cash, baby. The higher the, the, higher the return, the higher the risk. That's, that's such a Herb Greenberg thing to say. I mean, honestly, like I don't disagree, but it's just so Herb. <laughs> Herb Sorry. AI Greenberg. Someone has to say it. Somebody, and it's you. Thank you. That's All right, right, a quick programming note. FTC Chair Lena Khan will join for an exclusive interview, not us. That's tomorrow on Squawk Box about 8.15 a.m. She'll talk about the regulatory scrutiny around, you guessed it, AI, a.k.a. artificial intelligence. All right, we're not done here on Last Call. Still ahead, we're going to talk about the staggering total number of losses around car makers and EV makers. If you think you know how much investor value has been wiped out, no you don't, but you will after this. It's time to take your career to the next level. With over 150 graduate degree programs, the Catholic University of America, located in Washington, D.C., provides world-class academics with a student experience that educates the whole person, mind, body, and spirit. Whether your professional calling is in engineering, nursing, social work, or any of our other exceptional degree programs, encounter the best of everything that Catholic University has to offer and discover the best in yourself. Learn more today at catholic.edu forward slash gradadmissions. All right, time for today's RBI, and right now let's get random but interesting on cars, because as a 25-year amateur car racer, I love cars, love them, even love electric cars. I've driven a number of them, and I'm considering actually buying one myself. But even with all the hype, let's not pretend that all is well in Autoland. There are severe investor losses over the last two or so years, and some new EV players appear to be really struggling. It's not clear if all of them will be around in a year or two. But remember that in the world of automobiles, that is not abnormal. We've got to go back to the automobile history, back in time, dare I say, all the way back to 1908. 1908, there were 253 registered car companies trying to win in the brand new business. 20 years later, more than 200 of those were gone, wiped out, most of them. Some got bought. And in 1929, just three companies, Ford, GM, and Chrysler, we're about 80% of the American auto business. That is how capitalism works. But capitalism can also be painful for investors. And it has been brutal lately as new EV makers and Detroit all try to convince you, the American public, that you need to buy their car, their EV. Plug it in, don't fill it up. Now the jury, still out on how this may go. But the market seems to have issued a verdict and it is not good. Look at this. We calculated the total market cap wipeout among car company stocks off their recent highs. Yes, these are off the peaks, but there were buyers back then anyway until today. And it is just insane. The total loss in value from GM, Ford, Tesla, Rivian, Lucid, Lordstown Motors, and Fisker off the top to today is 997 Billion, almost a trillion dollars with a T. Now, the majority of that is Tesla, which is about three-fourths of that decline. But GM and Ford, 
They're down $44 billion in value each off their highs just two years ago. And the pure play e-makers, EV makers have been crushed after investors ran up their stocks at a trading frenzy. Here's the lesson. Electric cars, they may be the future. I don't know. But Wall Street is not so sure that the stocks of electric cars or the stocks of Detroit going big into EVs is a good ride right now. We hope that you come out unscathed, random, and hopefully interesting. Let's talk about this more with Dan Ives of Wedbush Securities and Gordon Johnson of GLG Research. And most of that was Tesla. Gordon, obviously, you've been critical of Tesla for a while. And I'm just trying, I'm, again, I'm not sort of dumping on the EV makers. What I'm saying is that some of these businesses, forget about the cars, okay? The Rivian, my neighbor has one. Fantastic truck. He loves it. But that doesn't fix a balance sheet at a Lordstown or a Lucid, right? Differentiate the product from the stock. Right. So I think there's a big problem for the pure EV makers. And let me explain what that is, right? All of these guys are direct sales. They don't sell into dealers. They don't have a dealer franchise. These are all companies that are new frontier asset, new frontier assets. They haven't seen a recession. So when you're selling direct to the customer, it's great when everything is going well. But when things go bad, if you're a legacy automaker, you sell to the dealership. So even if those cars are sitting in inventory at the dealership, you still recognize revenue. You still recognize gross margin. Tesla, Fisker, uh, Rivian, Lucid, these guys who go direct to the customer, if they can't sell those cars, That's it. they sit on their balance sheet, the company's balance sheet. And that is going to cause margin crushing fixed good cost absorption. And this is something that I think Dan Ives, my, my, my competitor here, and some of the others on Wall Street haven't considered, which is why Tesla's EPS has went from over $6 roughly seven months ago to roughly $3 right now. And the stock's trading at 59 yeah. times, you know, one Q earnings annualized when the auto industry trades at six times. These companies have a fundamental problem in their business, and I think you're going to see that in margins. Well, and th- Dan, that is something on Lucid. Looking at Lucid's balance sheet today, they list $1 billion in inventory. The car is expensive, caught $125,000, whatever, plus dollars. That would indicate that Lucid is sitting on a few thousand unsold cars in what is arguably the hottest car sales market of our lifetime. Yeah, and it's been a black eye moment. I mean, ultimately, a lot of empty promises, and it's about scale. And I think that's the one thing. You see it with Rivian. You see it with Lucy. You see it with Fisk. I mean, that's been the issue. And right now, in terms of electric vehicles, especially with the 313 area code, diving into the deep end of the pool, GM, Ford, you look at what they've built from a, you know, from a battery perspective, and, of course, Tesla. Look, we're going through a pricing war. And this is just what, from an investor perspective, it's been a nightmare scenario, and it speaks to what we've seen in terms of the stocks. And, and, you know, Gordon, that's what troubles me here. And we talk about this, and people say, well, why are you knocking electric cars all the time? It's because when you go to – go, here's what I urge my viewers to do and our listeners to do, okay, because I like to buy one. Go research them. Go talk to the auto dealers. Go talk to other owners. Go talk to people on Reddit boards. They love them. They love them. But they are different to drive. It's a way you have to change the way you think about travel. That will change over time, Gordon. I'm convinced we will just hopefully charging will just become like gas stations were, you know, 50, 75 years ago, whatever it may be. Eisenhower, though, built the interstates before we actually had enough cars to fill them up. I just wonder if we're doing this in reverse. And I worry about Detroit. I worry about an 80 billion dollar market cap loss in Ford and GM. I didn't pick on Stellantis. Because they're fiat, they've got a lot more international, they got some other businesses. This is not a good time for GM and Ford to be losing $40 billion each in investor value. It never is a good time. Yeah that's, that's a, yeah, that's a great point. But I think Ford and GM are going to be fine. The legacy automakers get 95% of their profit from selling ICE cars. For now, though, but for now. Cars. But now we're hearing, oh, we're but, not going to no, make they, gas engine cars. And California says you're not going to be able to sell your gas engine cars. But, By the way, in 12 years, 12 years, right, the first Brian, cars were electric. Mind, right? I'm going to read from my notes here. The Energy Policy Institute uh, at the University of Chicago recently, recently did a survey. And eight out of 10 Americans said they are unlikely as their next car to buy an uh, EV car. They still want to stick with ICE cars. 
So I don't think ICE cars are going anywhere. You can't force people, or at least so far, we haven't fully crossed the, uh, the pendulum to socialism. And so you can't force people to buy EVs. And, you know, if you look at what's happening, these uh, these legacy automakers are supplementing the EV losses with with yep. the big profits they're making on their ICE cars. You know, GM, Ford, et cetera, roughly 18 to 19 percent gross margin margin. That should terrify Tesla investors. Tesla, with their recent price cuts, you're talking about 16 to 17 percent gross margins. One yep. thing I want to say, Warren Buffett made this comment in 1900. There were 40 million horses. Right. Uh, you know, you fast forward to today. There's about four million. But there were 2,000 auto companies and nearly every single one went bankrupt. Why? High, high capital intensive, yeah. high competition. It's, and with it, the free money that all these cars got, you know, you said EV in 2020, 2021, you got money. You just had all gotta, this new supply coming. The price war is something to be concerned we, about. We got to go. Dan and Gordon, thank you. The lesson here, you may love the product. You may love the technology. But just note the stock and the technology and the product can be wildly different things. Thank you both very much. By the way, speaking of... Rivian. That guy, RJ Scaringe, the founder and CEO of Rivian, will join Squawk Box tomorrow. Big interview. Their numbers look pretty good. After hours, their balance sheet looking a little bit better than some others, than, than bypassing the worst of the fears. Big interview, 7.30 tomorrow morning. All right, still ahead. Will Jay Powell slay inflation once and for all? A last call favorite tells you how to prepare for tomorrow's maybe make or break inflation data. Stick around. Welcome back. Could be a big day in the stock market tomorrow because some investors are anxiously awaiting a key inflation report set to drop tomorrow morning at 8.30 a.m. It is called the Consumer Price Index or the CPI. And what the Consumer Price Index measures is the index of consumer prices. It measures the monthly change in what you pay for things like goods and services. Let's talk about how much this might matter to the stock market with a gentleman that needs no introduction, but I will give him one anyway. His name is Guy Adami, you might know him as, you know, arguably a, the fat, you know, you, uh, the original, you and Tim, the original fast money guys. And I love guy that you were on last call. Hope to see much more of you. Does this report matter to a market that's done? I think the technical term is squat over the last two months. Yeah, it has. And I love what you've done with the show. You've made it accessible to people. You explain things like CPI in a way that everybody understands. And I do think it matters. And it's interesting, you know, people watching at home say, I don't know what you folks at CNBC are looking at. Inflation's been a problem for me for decades. You know, the Fed wanted inflation for so long and they finally got it. You know, we'll talk about a 5% headline number tomorrow, 5.5% core number, which is what the Fed looks at. And people are saying, I don't know what you're looking at. It's a lot more for us. So does it matter for the market to answer your question? Absolutely does, because you came out of the break talking about slaying the inflation dragon. Well, they're trying to, but I got to tell you something. I think you know this as well. It's a very tough dragon to slay, Brian Sullivan. I don't know. You know, Lord of the Rings, okay? Return of the King, either the movie or the book. They kind of had the same ending, which is that, you know, they eventually slayed the dragon. But let's not forget that the village was destroyed in the process. And I just wonder, Elizabeth Warren has warned about it, can we slay the inflation dragon without killing the economy? Collateral damage, right? Without question. And I think we're seeing it. To a certain extent, I think with these bank failures or whatever term you want to use, I think we have seen that. In terms of killing the economy, I'm going to let you in on a little secret that I think, this is just my opinion, in a lot of ways, that's exactly what the Federal Reserve wants to do. They want to see a slowdown. I think behind closed doors, they talk about the need for a slowdown or even using the recession word that nobody seems to want to talk about. So in order to kill it, they need to slow things down in a meaningful way. But their things will break along the way. You know, people talk about no landing, soft landing. I don't know what planet they're on, but there's going to be a landing. I don't think it's going to be particularly pleasant. We'll survive the landing, but it's one of those things you're going to walk away from saying, holy bleep, I can't believe we got through that. You've been on those types of planes before. Uh, I have, and I, and I look forward to not being on those planes, but I have a feeling that your analogy slash metaphor may be indeed correct. Uh, Guy Adami, so good to have you on Last Call, my man. Appreciate it. Thank you. Always enjoy it. Thanks, Brian. Thank you. All right, coming up. 
President Biden and Republican congressional leaders failing to get a breakthrough deal on the debt ceiling standoff, but they're still talking. California Congressman Ro Khanna will join us on Last Call next with what he thinks will happen next. All right, welcome back. As the graphic says, there have been a lot of fast developments this evening on the debt ceiling standoff. If you're just catching up, here's where things stand. President Biden meeting this afternoon with top congressional leaders, resulting in no breakthrough for a deal. Not surprisingly, each side seems to be pointing fingers at one another. President Biden did speak at the White House about the lack of progress a little bit earlier. I told congressional leaders that I'm prepared to begin a separate discussion about my budget and the spending priorities, but not under the threat of default. As I said, I've already cut the deficit by $1.7 trillion in my first two years in office. But in the meantime, in the meantime, we need to take the threat of default off the table. Now, both sides have said they will meet again on Friday, but really we're in a race against the clock. Joining us now is California Congressman Ro Khanna. Uh, Congressman Khanna, great to have you back on again. Listen, uh, Mitch McConnell said we're not going to default. The president said we don't want to default. Are we going to get a deal? Well, I believe we're going to pay our bills, and I don't think we're going to default. It would be catastrophic. It would be a self-inflicted wound on the greatest economy in the world. Why would we want to do that? Pay our bills, and then let's discuss, honestly, how to reduce the deficit. I mean, let's talk about repealing some of Trump's tax cuts on the very wealthy. Let's talk about repealing some of George W. Bush's tax cuts on the very wealthy. Let's talk about scrapping the cap on Social Security after 250000 Let's talk about certain defense cuts so we don't have a trillion-dollar defense. I've just put a number of proposals on the table, and we can have that conversation after we pay our bills. What are your, give us one or two of your key proposals. What would you, if you sat down in a room with Speaker McCarthy, maybe you have, you're both Californians after all, what are your proposals? I'm willing to sit down with him, and I have before. We worked on legislation. Here's one thing I think bipartisan we could get behind. You know the people who got some of the COVID money who should not have qualified for it, multi-million dollar firms that basically gamed the system. Why don't we audit everyone who took those COVID loans and make sure they actually qualified? That would start. That'd be a start. I'm you not sure saying you want to do that, Congressman, because you may not like what you find. You can search who took COVID money on its public data. And I don't know if you want to do that. Well, look, I, I mean, I'm all for the mom and pop shops getting it. But if you're a multi-million dollar business and you got COVID funding and you didn't qualify, I mean, that should be money coming back to the taxpayers. There's a lot more uh, that I, I, I want in terms of repealing some of the top tax cuts uh, for the very wealthy on, that Trump had and Bush had. But those are going to be more contentious. But the, the COVID money uh, that went out to people who didn't deserve it, that should be bipartisan. Let's. We talk a lot about debt forgiveness. Most of it's coming in the form of talking about student loan debt forgiveness. Now, it's very popular among people with student loans. I'm not sure if it's very popular among people without student loans or the blue collar. You're talking about killing health care debt. Are you not like getting rid of that type of debt for whom and how would this work, Congressman? There are a lot of people, they're insured, they have a stay in the hospital and, you know, you break a bone, you have a car accident, and then they find out that their own insurance covered 80%, 90%, which may sound good, until you find out you've got a $200,000 bill and you're left with ten, twenty, thirty thousand dollars $30,000 of debt. And a lot of people have this debt and it keeps accumulating with credit card uh, payments. And what we're saying is no one in America should go into debt for falling sick. I don't think that that's hard to do. People say, well, who's going to pay for it? I mean, we pay as a society for our roads in this country, for our public schools. I think the richest country in the world, where my district has $10 trillion of market value, can say we'll pay, we'll pay to make sure no one goes into medical debt in America. Who covers that cost then, I guess, is the question. If you wipe out the debt, somebody's not getting paid. Hospitals, insurers. Well, Sure. There's about $89 billion of medical debt in this country. And my view is that 
the, we should first stop the price gouging of hospitals and make sure that there's not aggressive uh, debt collection, but then we should set up a federal fund uh, for those hospitals to be able to, uh, to be compensated for the legitimate debt. So I'm very open that I think it should be the taxpayers that are uh, paying for uh, the, the, the medical debt over, uh, uh, for people, but I just think as a society we shouldn't have people going uh, into debt. I think it's wrong. Mm -hmm. I don't think if there by the grace of God go, goes, uh, go all of us. I mean, if someone has an accident, if someone gets sick, if someone gets cancer, I agree. it's bad enough you're in the hospital. I had some, some people very close to me who went through some of the things that you just mentioned as well. But how do we just bring the how can we bring the cost of medical care down? I literally went in to see an e, I had a sinus infection. It's a true story. I went in and got a, a nose scan. He prescribed me some spray. I was in there maybe 12 minutes. I just got the bill is $1,000 and $1,084. Why? Well, I would recommend to American prescribe me an, an, it's a book an, an anxiety drug now because I got the bill. I mean, it's ridiculous. <laughs> I agree with you. I, uh, now, we may disagree, but I think Medicare for all would actually lower costs because you'd be taking out the hospital facility fees. You'd be taking out all of the private insurance profits. You'd be taking out the excessive profits of, of pharma. And we also have technology solutions that can reduce costs. But I can, look, we pay 20% of our GDP in healthcare costs. It's what's led to wage stagnation. It's what led to some of the offshoring of manufacturing. We need to figure out how we get some of the excessive mm -hmm. costs out of the system. Congressman Ro Khan of California, really appreciate it. Thank you, sir. Be well. Thank you. All right, now let's lighten it up a bit, shall we? And head to quicker than the ticker. Some of the headlines that caught our attention and the stories that we just thought were fun. Let's put 60 seconds on the clock and go. The CNBC Disruptor 50 list is out. And no surprise, the Microsoft-backed OpenAI takes the top spot for the waves it's been making in tech. Speaking of artificial intelligence, what do Hardee's, Carl's Jr., and Wendy's all have in common? Besides burgers, of course. They're all getting into the AI business. It is meant to help ordering and your experience at the drive-thru. Ryanair going bigger on Boeing. The airline said it plans to buy at least 150 737 MAX 10 jets. That's a more than $20 billion order at list prices. Workers at job search company LinkedIn may have to use their own site. The company cutting more than 700 people, nearly 4% of their workforce, upload those resumes. The Chicago Blackhawks won the NHL draft lottery and the money is pouring in. 17-year-old Canadian phenom Connor Bedard expected to be the top pick. He is considered one of the greatest hockey prospects of all time. The Blackhawks have sold more than 5 million in tickets in less than 24 hours. By the way, Bedard, only 17 years old and playing in a pro, basically a pro team in Regina, Saskatchewan. I just wanted to say Saskatchewan. All right, coming up, we're going to talk a lot about the dangers of AI in the next couple of months and years, but Guess what? There's some good news. A lot of the boring stuff you have to do at your job, you might be able to automate that away, but will you automate yourself away? We'll talk about it next with the CEO. All right, with the rise of artificial intelligence and apps like ChatGPT and others, it begs the question, are companies willing to bet and spend on AI for the good of their employees and their company. Well, one CEO is doing just that. Akash Nigam is the CEO of Genies. It is a billion-dollar tech company that specializes in custom avatars. And Nigam is now paying his 120 employees to have access to ChatGPT+. It's all to help eliminate tasks that can easily be done by the tech bot. That way, work can be focused on more creative and productive tasks. At least, that's the idea. So is it working? Well, let's bring in now the CEO of Genies, and, and I love your LinkedIn profile, University of Michigan dropout. You just throw it out there, Akash, which, <laughs> which is fantastic, by the way. All right, so number one, what is this roughly, you don't have to tell us exactly, but roughly Sorry. what is this cost per person, and what are you getting out of it? It's $2,000 a month um, in total. Um, we're getting a lot, right? At the end of the day, we believe that the people that are going to get replaced by any new technology are the ones that aren't ambitious enough to want to learn a new skill or a new tech that's going to advance their core skill set. Um, the one thing that humans have that's a safe haven for themselves is a form of critical thought. Um, and so it forces people actually to be focusing on some of like the core tenets of the human mind 
while being able to automate some of the key tenants of um, just mundane tasks, whether it's um, things that are in the finance department, the accounting department, the recruiting department, the legal department. There's many things right now that don't require significant headcount, and we believe that AI is going to help replace that. I guess what we've talked about, Akash, is when it's wrong, right? We think it's just always going to be right because the computer, but it's not. I mean, it's going to make simple errors. Have you found it to be, I mean, have, have there been any major screw-ups? Because some people, well, the, the chatbot told me to do that. I didn't know the submarine was going to go that way. <laughs> no, we haven't had any of those incidents quite yet. Um, and I think that's why human moderation is really important in the very beginning. Um, there's the mundane tasks, which can be easily automated. And those are really the tasks that are predictable, that have templates that already exist. And there's a finite number of possibilities that AI can be really helpful with being able to cultivate. However, there's yeah. also the creative tasks. And so the creative task might be creating creative briefs, or it could be um, creating a, um, a unique solution to some yeah. of the tech advancements that we're trying to make on the avatar front. That's where human moderation is really important. Yeah. And that's where humans need to be able to instill their critical thought in order to come to the right solution. I, I, lo I love Akash that there still is a human involved. Akash Nigam of Genies. Thank you very much, Akash. Be well. Appreciate it. Thanks for having me. All right. Uptown girl, Vienna, New York state of mind, piano man, and my favorite, I'm sorry, Down Easter Alexa. For tonight's Back in Time, we're honoring one of the best-selling artists of all time, obviously Billy Joel. 72, 74 years ago, Billy Joel was born in the Bronx. He began taking piano lessons at the age of four. At 18, he dropped out of high school to pursue music full-time. 71 released his first full album. Two years later, with his second album, obviously Piano Man, became a mega superstar. Billy Joel, one of the most popular entertainers in the world. In fact, has a song called The Entertainer. I won't sing it for you, but I will see you tomorrow night. You have a wonderful evening. Shark Tank is next. It's time to take your career to the next level. With over 150 graduate degree programs, the Catholic University of America, located in Washington, D.C., provides world-class academics with a student experience that educates the whole person, mind, body, and spirit. Whether your professional calling is in engineering, nursing, social work, or any of our other exceptional degree programs, encounter the best of everything that Catholic University has to offer and discover the best in yourself. Learn more today at catholic.edu forward slash gradadmissions.